Hey everybody, and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Brendan Carr, and today my guest is Derek Gaunt. Derek is a former hostage negotiator, he's a leadership trainer at the Black Swan Group, and he's the author of Ego, Authority, and Failure. And in this episode, we talk about Derek's incredible tools for being a better leader, a better negotiator, and being better at having difficult conversations, especially things like calibrated questions, labels, and mirrors. If you're interested in having good conversation and you like good stories from a hostage negotiator, this episode's for you. How do you get into being a hostage negotiator? You first have to have something internal. Uh, there's a, there's a, uh, there's a voice inside of you that says, um, you want to be, you want to do something different. The cops mm-hmm. are a types and hostage negotiators are a types of the a types much, um, in the same vein as, as, as SWAT operators are a types of the a types. We like to think of ourselves as the people that the, uh, the people that the police call when the police get in trouble. My interest in hostage negotiation began in the mid 1990s, um, I started my law enforcement career in 88, um, and I became a narcotics investigator two years after that. And in the time that I became um, a narcotics investigator, what I found was um, there was a drug nexus to almost every crime that was being committed in the city that I worked, Alexandria, Virginia. Hmm. It was not uncommon for the people that we arrested for street level narcotics violations to have information about other crimes. And so that led me to honing my interview and interrogation skills um, and and teaching me how to establish rapport to get the information that I needed in order for me to um, to move on to bigger cases, to help Mm -hmm. close some cases that may have been open. Uh, saying specific things in specific manners to elicit specific, specific responses from um, the individuals that we were dealing with. And then I heard about this thing called hostage negotiation, and that took what I was doing at the investigator level to an entirely different um, level um, insofar as using psychological principles to uh, get people to do what you want them to do. Um, and so when the opportunity presented itself in 1997, I competed for one of five spots that were available on our hostage negotiation team, and I was selected. Um, so that's, in a nutshell, how, how I got started. started with just a basic internal drive on my part, uh, and then looking at the similarities between um, rapport-based interview and interrogation leading up to rapport-based influence. Uh, that you use at the hostage negotiation level. Mm. And I heard you mention in another podcast interview that you did that there's a lot of similarities between the interrogation and negotiation skill set. What would be some of the differences that you had to to overcome or learn as you moved into negotiation? The differences is with interview and interrogation, you've you've got an audience right in front of you. You're going face-to-face with an individual Mm. in a a small room um, with hostage negotiations, more often than not, it was on the phone. And so the challenges are, I can't read body language over the phone. I can't read facial expressions over the phone. So I have to um, be cognizant of tonality, uh, cadence, um, diction, 
and I have to be cognizant of underlying or hidden motivations uh, that are not readily detected as they would be if you were face to face. Um, that, so those were those were the big differences, but the, that was the big difference. But the the similarities were 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 were, were prominent. There there were many of them. In both of those environments, you get more with honey than you do with vinegar. <laughs> so you're you're getting called in then on these these big negotiation cases, and a lot of what you talk about in the book is about keeping emotions in check, keeping the ego in check. And yeah. how how do you do that though? When it seems in the heat of the moment, there would be so much excitement. We're taught early on in in, in negotiations training uh, that the first thing you have to do is control yourself before you attempt to control the situation. If you can't control yourself, you're going to become part of the problem. Um, and repeating the mantra in your mind that it's not about you. Mm. It's not where you want to go. It's not where you want to end up. It's about the other person. And so we pride ourselves on our ability to be able to subordinate ourselves to the other side to defer to the other side in order to find out what's the true motivation behind what they just said, what's the true motivation behind the actions that they're engaged in right now. Um, and, and it's just, it, 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 it takes practice. It takes understanding that when you're talking with someone in these situations, they're coming from an intense emotional, um, they're coming from an intense, an intense emotional frame of reference. Mm -hmm. And the sooner you understand that, and the sooner you know it's not about you, you recognize that it's not about you, the sooner you're going to be able to help them lower their emotions, return them to a normal functioning level, and then begin to influence them to move in the direction that you want them to go. Mm. And you, you talk about an intense emotional frame of reference, and now you've transitioned to another intense emotional sort of vein. You're helping people with, more with business negotiations. How did you move into that? The founder and the CEO of the Black Swan Group, Chris Voss, he and I became fast friends when he moved from New York to D.C. Uh, back in 2000. He, uh, he got promoted, if you will, to the Crisis Negotiations Unit that is headquartered in Quantico, Virginia, at the FBI Academy. And he's, he was 35 miles south of where I was working, uh, and we were both in the negotiations field, and so our paths crossed quite frequently. And we became fast friends. Mm -hmm. And then he, uh, he left the Bureau in 2007, started the Black Swan Group, um, and he had this idea that because he had done so much work in the in the international kidnap arena that the practices and principles that we espoused in kidnap and hostage negotiations could be applied to business negotiations. And it took me a while to get my head around that concept. But uh, the more I thought about it, the more I said, yeah, he's he's right. And so uh, in 2010, um, he brought me on board on a part-time basis and, uh, and, and we began to refine what we now call the black swan method of business negotiations. Um, and we continue to make it better and better 
and 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 show other people, especially people in the corporate world, that what we did in hostage negotiation is applicable to their world. Because anytime anybody in the business world gets a no, gets a threat, gets a demand from their counterpart in a difficult conversation or a business negotiation, it's because of trust or fear or a combination mm -hmm. of the two. The same dynamics that we were dealing with as hostage negotiators and, and kidnap negotiators. At the end of the day, people in the business world are compliance professionals, hmm. right? They're, they're selling a good or a service. Totally. And they're trying to get people to buy, i.e. to comply. And I, as I've always said, as a hostage negotiator, I was the ultimate compliance professional because <laughs> I sold jail time and I got people to buy it all of the time. And, uh, and you, you mentioned the trust and fear are a, are a big part of moving through a negotiation situation and getting people to, to buy in. Now, I wonder why is it that still there are so many leaders or maybe there are so many glamorized images of leaders who people are afraid of or who people might not trust and there's an intimidation that comes from the leader? Why is that, that image of a leader still perpetuated? That's a great question and that was an impetus, an impetus for the book, Ego Authority, mm -hmm. Failure, uh, because um, it is so prevalent. You know, I, I watched a, a YouTube um, video of Simon Sinek uh, talking about uh, this, this same topic. He said that, that there should be no um, demand for his services <laughs> right. in, in, in 2019, and yet he's still getting paid uh, a lot of money to come in and help corporations fix their cultures from the leader position leadership positions on down to the frontliners and that's because we we haven't made it a standard um in our organizations and uh with ego and authority both of those i view as emotions that cloud the judgment of a leader um and both of them point the spotlight back at them that's where you get that my way or the highway type mm. of mentality. And it, it, it supports the notion that people are not, they're not leaving jobs. They're leaving bosses. Right. Um, so the big question is to answer your question. Um, why is it, why is it still a problem? Mm. And that's because, uh, people are, we haven't as a whole, recognized it as a problem those who have recognized that has a problem think it's the cost of doing business that's what you get when you when you get a leader but <laughs> the sooner we change the mindset and have people in leadership positions begin to treat their employees the same with the same level of deference that we treated hostage negotiators the better the relationship is going to be, the more productivity they're going to see, and you will create a culture where you have high-performing individuals because they have a great working relationship with those in authority over them. Mm. And in your work, how do you see people making this transition? Is it is it tough for them? Do you have a, a story maybe of someone who's worked through this kind of transition from being that really overwhelming uh, boss, kind of overbearing to being someone who can exercise these skills that you talk about? 
Yeah. So there was a, a client that I worked with not too long ago who had just uh, gotten promoted to a, a position uh, and now he's working uh, in a leadership position over guys that he was shoulder to shoulder with, Ooh. you know, um, a month before. And so the relationship has changed uh, quite a bit. And he started to get pushback from those guys that he used to work shoulder to shoulder with on every single idea, suggestion, or opinion that he raised. And he was struggling with it. Mm-hmm. And he spoke about a heated discussion that he had with one of his now subordinates. Uh, and he wanted to know what was it that he did to provoke such a response from the other side. And I told him, I said, the, the problem is you know where you want to go and you've got tunnel vision on, mm. on where you want to end up and you have the authority to make it happen by virtue of your rank. And these guys or this particular guy is responding to you because he views you as not qualified to have the position. He views you as somebody who got promoted too soon. He views you as somebody that he used to break bread with in the lunchroom the month before. And he may be stinging a little bit over the fact that you got selected and he didn't. Mm. So the next time you have the conversation with him, know that those negatives are there and address them up front and get them out of the way. Mm. Subordinate yourself to him. Defer to him. At the end of the day, you and I both know that what you're saying is going to be done will be done, but it's all in the packaging on how you deliver the the message. Take the focus off of you and put it on him. Understand what the, what the lay of the land looks like from his perspective. Deal with those negatives up front. Get them out of the way because as long as those negatives are in there, that his amygdala is fired up and any word that comes out of your mouth is being blocked by the negative emotions attached to those four points that I made. He executes the conversation in the manner that I recommended and he, he calls me back a few days later and he says – Unbelievable. <laughs> Unbelievable. I learned more about what's going on in this guy's not only professional life, but there were things that were going on in his personal life that were making his life at work difficult. Mm-hmm. And he was taking it out on the the new boss. And once I allowed him to to dump his bucket, so to speak about all of those things. And I sat back and I really listened to everything that was impacting him. When I finally got to explaining why we were making the changes we were making and why we were asking him to take on this different assignment, it was like night and day. And it happened because people want to be understood more than anything else. And once you demonstrate that, that, that understanding with tactical empathy, all kinds of doors open up for you. Yeah. And, and Derek, you have a story. This is, that was a, an individual example, but you have used this on a group scale. 
you mentioned in the book uh, a story where you go to a group of SWAT operators and you, you have an organization that doesn't have a budget yet, but you know that the yeah. SWAT group does. Yeah, how, yeah. how did you bring this into them? And I, you, you mentioned showing up and they see you as sort of the outside guy. And I, I can just think I, I was active duty military and I was aviation. And if we went into, say, you know, a group with a bunch of guys who were submariners or something like that, yeah, they, yeah. they see us as, oh, it's the flyboys, you know, and, and things like that. So I could totally relate. Yeah, they, you guys don't get your uniforms too dirty up there at 30,000 feet. <laughs> right. Um, and we're down here on the ground and, and we got boots in the sand. And, and yeah, yeah, the prima donna flyboys. Right. So I, I could totally relate. So how, how did you work that into showing up into that group? How did you bring these skills? These skills are applicable to any time you're going to have a difficult conversation. Mm-hmm. What's a difficult conversation? A difficult conversation is a conversation where you're you're probably going to be driving for a yes, but you're at the very least you're going to be sharing information with someone who may not want to hear it. Mm-hmm. And I knew going in that these SWAT guys were not going to want to hear what I wanted to talk to them about, which, as you mentioned, was was putting my hand into their kitty and taking some of the money out of it in order to, uh, in order to get, to, uh, get some training done for the negotiators. And so, uh, the relationship between hostage negotiators and SWAT operators historically has been a tenuous one. It hasn't been great. It's, it's gotten better, uh, because of education and attrition. Uh, but you know, when, as I mentioned in the book, if you ask a negotiator what their impression of a SWAT operator um, is, and you'll hear things like, you know, uh, tobacco dipping, <laughs> vel- Velcro wearing, door kickers who just want to shoot people and break things. And if you ask a SWAT operator their impression of a negotiator, you know, you hear name like names like Mouth Marine, Kumbaya Crowd. <laughs> Um, tree huggers, you know, just want everybody to get along. And so I know that there will be a percentage of the people in the room who, who have that view of negotiators. Right. Mm -hmm. And I also know that I'm going in to ask for money that I had no hand in raising those two factors alone, uh, indicates to me that um, there are going to be negatives that the people that are going to receive my message uh, are going to be dealing with as they hear it. And mm-hmm. so I want to attack those negatives right away. So I made a list of accusations audits before I went into the room about all the negative opinions, impressions, and assumptions that the SWAT operators may have about me. You know, this is a money grab on my part. Uh, the audacity that I must have walking to this room asking for money that I had no hand in raising. Um, we, you know, we do training that's tangible, you know, explosive training, uh, breaching training, Mm. sniper training. You guys talk. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I knew there were going to be negative going in. And, um, so on the appointed day and time I show up 
and I showed up because the chairman of the this particular subcommittee said, I think it's a good idea, but I can't make the decision on my own. It's got to be put to a vote. So I want you to come and, and speak to the guys. So I go in and as soon as I hit the door, you know, it was like in the book, I equated it to Eddie Murphy in, in 48 hours when he walks into the country bar. Hmm. You know, every, all the talking stopped, the eyes turn towards the door and then immediately guys start whispering to each other smirking you know arms started being folded across the chest they're already in defense mode mm -hmm. before i have even said a word just my mere presence have made some of these guys defensive and so when my turn came i stood up and i launched into the negatives i dealt with all of the negative assumptions and opinions i knew that they probably were thinking about me and I threw them out front. Mm -hmm. I wasn't looking for confirmation and I wasn't looking for them to refute anything that I was saying. I was just laying out empathetic stepping stones as I marched towards my goal. And I, and I quickly established rapport with the room and, and with the accusations audits, when you attack the negatives right off the bat, it's the fastest way to demonstrate to the other side that it's not about me. Mm. And where I want to end up. And so I lay out those empathetic stepping stones. I know where I want to end up. And then I finally get to the portion of the conversation where I make my ask. And that's where most people make their mistake in difficult conversations or negotiations. They get the sequencing wrong. They usually walk in with all of the data and information that supports their position yeah. and they throw it on the table and they say, here's why you should make this decision. And what happens? They get pushed back because they got the sequencing backwards mm -hmm. to, to put it in a, in, in another, um, put, to put it another way, my goal and objective as a hostage negotiator was to do what? Uh, I, I would say to, to get everybody home safe. Boom. That's it. Yeah. So if that's my goal and objective, how many times do you think that I picked up the phone and I called inside of the crisis site and I say, Hey, Brendan, it's Derek from the police department. Listen, my goal and objective is to make sure everybody goes home safe. So why don't you put the gun down and release the hostages and come on out? <laughs> At which point I'd say, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so you don't think I, I would ever lead with that, right? Is right. that what you're saying? I, I would. Okay. Uh, yeah. But why? After all, that's my goal and objective. Why mm. don't I lead with that? Well, it's, I mean, at that point, I would, I would say that the person you're talking to has other goals and objectives. They, they probably want to get home safe and preferably not in custody. Exactly. Mm. I haven't taken the time to understand not only what it is they want, but why they want it. Mm -hmm. I haven't built up any trust. I haven't built up any rapport. And because of that, I have no trust-based influence mm. because the sequencing is wrong. The sequencing is tactical empathy first, goals and objective last. So that's the, that's the way I approached this room. And um, as I'm marching towards my goal and objective, I make my ask. And then one of the guys says, uh, I got to tell you, 
I don't think it's a good idea because it's going to set a dangerous precedent. Not a dangerous precedent. He said it's going to set a precedent that we won't, that we don't want to establish. Because if we give you money, then we're going to have to give the canine group money, and then we're going to have to give this other group money, yeah. and pretty soon we're not going to have any money. Now, mind you, they had been sitting on almost $80,000 for three years that they hadn't spent. They hadn't touched. Um, but they were afraid of opening Pandora's box. Right. So um, I dealt with that with labels and mirrors and calibrated questions to understand where he was coming from on, on that end. Then he started with the tangible things. We train to blow stuff up. And we train to 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 buy new ammunition, and we train to we train our snipers in a certain fashion, and that's what our money is usually spent for. You want to fly a negotiator in here to talk. I think that case studies are valuable, but I don't think we should be wasting our money. In essence, is is what he said. Mm. And, and so, calibrated questions, labels, and mirrors got me to flesh out the fact that it wasn't really the type of training that he had a problem with. He had a problem with the fact that the negotiation subcommittee did nothing to help them raise the money that they had in the kitty. And so once I demonstrated an understanding of that, I concluded my presentation and I thanked them and I walked out of the room Mm -hmm. and then A couple days later, the chairman said, we put it to a vote and it was unanimous. You're going to get your money. Um, Now, I could have gone in threatening. I could have gone in saying, look, give me the money. If you don't, I'm going to go to the chiefs of police subcommittee, which is the the governing body. And I'm going to tell them, you guys have been kicking into this kitty for three for the past 10 years. The last three years, they haven't spent a dime. Hmm. And if I were to go to the chiefs of police and tell them that, they would say, you know what? Since you're not spending the money, we're going to take and give them half of what's in your pot right now, which is quite a bit more than what I was asking for. I could have done that. Mm-hmm. But if I had gone in, gone in guns blazing, to coin a phrase like that, it would have been damaging long term as far as the relationship between the two subcommittees. Because that's not the – that would not have been the last time, and it wasn't the last time that I engaged them um, for uh, not money, but for uh, cooperation in training ventures. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, in any difficult conversation, you want the person with whom you're engaging to want to engage with you again. And right. if I had gone in threatening to go to the chiefs of police, that would have been a short-term gain for me, but it would have severely damaged the reputation or the relationship and my reputation going forward. And they would have been feeling a little bit of pain as a result. And revenge is a powerful motivator. <laughs> Given the opportunity to make me feel the same pain at some point in the future, they would take it. Right, and it seems that that a lot of what you talk about in reference to business is that you've got to be playing a long game because especially if you're negotiating, say a contract, it's just the beginning. You've you've got to be able to leave people feeling upbeat about the way that things ended. Yeah. And, and, and people always get uh, confused about that. 
we put so much emphasis on on the first impression that we ignore the last impression. Hmm. And the last impression is the lasting impression in any difficult conversation. And that's all that a negotiation is, by the way. It's just a difficult conversation. In any difficult conversation, whether you're talking to a, a, a subordinate or whether you're talking to a counterpart um, over a, a contract or in a contract negotiation, it's, it's, it's just a difficult conversation. And, and either, in either one of those cases, people remember the most intense moment and they remember how they felt at the conclusion. And if you make them feel heard and respected at the conclusion, they may not like what they ultimately agree to, but they will like the way you made them feel after the fact. And so some of your specific tools for this, you mentioned in the, in the SWOT example, you talked about labels, mirrors, and calibrated questions. What, mm-hmm. do, the, what do those tools mean to you? They mean the world to me. <laughs> they are my bread and butter. Mm-hmm. Um, labels are, are simply verbal observations of a dynamic, an emotion, or a circumstance where we say it looks like, it seems like, it sounds like, or you look, you seem, you sound. It's not a judgment. It's just what we're picking up from the counterpart in the conversation, mm-hmm. attaching a tentative label to what we're hearing, seeing, or otherwise discerning from the dialogue. Mirrors, just repeating back, these are just statements, just repeating back the last one to three words, you know, inflecting upward or downward, depending on, on where you want the conversation to go. For example, uh, the guy says, she doesn't listen to me anymore and it makes me angry. Mm. I would mirror that by saying, makes you angry? Inflecting upward, making it an inquiry. Or I could reflect downward, makes you angry. <laughs> Indicating that I understand a declarative statement, meaning that I get where you're coming from. It's so subtle, and yet it's so apparent at the same time. As soon as I heard you say those statements, it's it's so distinct that inflection at the end. Yeah, yeah, and 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 it 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 prompts you to, if you're hearing it, it prompts you to, when you hear the upward inflection, to go on because that's what the inflection says to him subconsciously. Mm-hmm. Give me more. The downward inflection will provide an opportunity for him to keep going because subconsciously he's thinking to himself, he gets it. He understands. And people want other people to understand them. Mm-hmm. The more, you, the more you do, you know, I talked about empathetic stepping stones. The more you do at the beginning of the conversation, laying out those empathetic stepping stones, the more likely they are to reciprocate when it's your time to ask for what you're going to ask for. Mm-hmm. And then the calibrated questions are just your what, what and how questions. 
we have a skill set of, of, of nine skills, but I, I, I'm confident that I could carry on the conversation just using labels, mirrors, and calibrated questions. Yeah. And why do you use what and how questions? What makes that a calibrated question? Calibrated questions are it's a der, they're a derivation of the of open-ended questions. We throw out where, we throw out when, we throw out who, because they can be answered too succinctly. Hmm. What and how encourages the other side to provide us with a robust response. We are we are giving the illusion that they can answer any way they see fit, but we're still framing the scope of the conversation based on the question that we ask. We stay away from why simply because why universally makes people defensive. Every language on the planet has a version of why. Hmm. And in every corner of the world that, that why makes people defensive because it implies that it implies that there's a right answer and I don't have it. Uh-huh. When you, when you ask me why now I have to explain myself, you know, it's something as innocuous as why did you wear that shirt today? You hear <laughs> that question and you're thinking to yourself, what's wrong with my shirt? Now I got to defend why I made this choice. And so to prevent that defensiveness, because when people get defensive, well, when we defend ourselves, it's because we feel like we're being attacked or we feel like we're being threatened. That fires up the amygdala again. Mm-hmm. And when those emotions are high, rational thinking is low. And they feel like they have to uh, explain themselves. You put people in an awkward position. Yeah, It creates a barrier. So that's why we stick to what and how questions um, primarily to, to generate robust responses from the other side and to determine true motivations behind the statement or the question that they may have asked. I mean, the two, the two uh, calibrated questions that I tell all of my clients, you have locked and loaded and ready to go at a moment's notice is what makes you say that and what makes you ask? An example would be, I'm afraid we can't do this unless you take X out of the contract. I want to find out what's the motivation behind that. So I'm going to ask, what makes you say that? Mm-hmm. Um, another example would be, if I were to ask you, uh, Brendan, what are you doing tonight at 5 o'clock when you get off work? Immediately, what goes through your mind? What, what is this guy trying to commit me to? How is my <laughs> life going to change at 5 o'clock this afternoon? What is he really driving at? Because people normally ask terrible questions. They ask question A when they really want the answer to question B. Mm. And so I say, Brendan, what makes, um, what are you doing tonight at five when you get off work? So instead of asking me why, because you know, that makes me defensive, you're going to say, what makes you ask? Mm -hmm. And then I tell you, well, my car's in the shop and my wife is working late. I don't feel like taking an Uber. I know you drive right past the mechanic shop on your way home. I was wondering if you would give me a ride. That's the real question I wanted to ask. 
but I didn't because people are <laughs> asking direct questions like that. Yeah, th this happens all the time. These these exchanges, uh, these questions, and, and asking the right questions are something that I think we all know are important. But it's great that you have specific skills: the the labels, the mirrors, and the calibrated questions. I wonder what role do you think personality plays in this? Because I've also heard philosophies where you want to understand, okay, this person is a, is a such and such personality and they want to really drive the conversation and you need to work with them or this person just wants to get along. Do you, do you yeah, see a role so, for that? Yeah. So we break them up into three conflict types mm -hmm. at, at the Black Swan group, assertives, accommodators, and analysts. And we do an exercise in our corporate training and we have found that regardless of, of, um, race, creed, color, ethnicity, people usually break it neatly into thirds. The world breaks neatly into thirds. Mm -hmm. So a third of us are analysts, a third of us are accommodators, a third of us are assertive. So the first thing that I tell business people, leaders and otherwise, is that when you sit down to have a difficult conversation with someone, there's a 66% chance of their conflict type is different from yours. Mm. And so you have to adjust who you are in order to round yourself out and to be better. The assertive is dominant. They're goal oriented. They're straightforward. They speak in, a, in an aggressive style. They're not aggressive, but they speak in an aggressive style, which puts a lot of people off. They speak in, a, in an aggressive, straightforward style because they believe there's less chance for mis miscommunication. And they want to be heard. They want to be respected. The analyst is more driven by data and information. Mm -hmm. that, that makes them happy. <laughs> Confirming the data that they already have and getting more from you. And they don't they don't run from conflict but they think it's a waste of time and they'd rather not do, they'd rather not do it mm. and then your accommodator is all about relationships you know an accommodator you know the deal can get blown up as far as they're concerned as long as you and i are still friends they're okay with it mm. so understanding who you are understand the, the type of the other side uh, is very important because, um, you know, calibrated questions for the assertive. Why do you want to ask a bunch of what and how questions for the assertive? Because they love to talk. <laughs> they love to talk. They're, the other technique that is very good with them is silence, shutting your mouth. Hmm. Because they're going to fill, they're going to fill that void with the analyst. Calibrated questions also work well with them because they like comparison analysis. They like explaining the rationale of how they got to where they are because they are typically smarter. They're typically the smartest person in the room. Mm. So they want to show you with it. They, but in, with the assertive, it's more of a, a braggadocious style. With the analyst, they'll drop out facts and figures and they'll, they'll show you supporting data, supporting information to show you how they got to where they got. And, and with the accommodators, silence doesn't work as well on them because 
you go silent on an accommodator, they're going to think they did something wrong. They're going to think they said something wrong. And so they're going to be wondering, tied up in knots internally. Should I apologize? But light banter back and forth, labels and mirrors, because they're big on, on identifying feelings and emotions. So labels and mirrors work well with them. So each one of them, each one of the different conflict management types has uh, other has specific skills that work well with them as opposed to um, how they work with the other two, if that makes sense. Oh, it makes great sense. I, I think you, you could tell me, but it sounds like you're talking about a lot of the same skills, the labels, the mirrors, the calibrated questions, but sort of a different recipe with the same ingredients for different people. You have a, a different mix of them to match the yeah. personality, but still the same skills. Yeah, absolutely. And that was a great label that you did on me just to, I don't think I, don't think I didn't catch that. <laughs> I've been studying. Uh, and, uh, I, I did study and I, I read the whole book and it seemed that the message of it, a lot of it was a, a real drive to end the toxic leadership culture that we have. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it you know, from the top down and looking at yourself as a leader. But I wonder, do you have tips for people who are dealing with their own toxic leaders? Yeah. So, um, the same skills can be used in reverse. Mm -hmm. You don't have to be victimized your entire in, within your entire relationship with a toxic leader. Labels, mirrors, calibrated questions demonstrating that you understand the pressures that this particular leader is under. You understand the, and these pressures are internal and external mm -hmm. because they're, they're, they're toiling with the fact that they need to appear infallible. They need to appear that they know what's going on within their teams. They need to appear that they have the mission of the organization top of mind. And they're under a lot of pressure to perform, especially if they fall into the category of a blue flamer. Right. When they when they get promoted rapidly through the ranks and they get promoted so fast that they don't get a lot of operational experience at one level before they're moved to the next. And as a result, they know that they don't have all the qualifications necessary to be highly successful at the next level. Their subordinates know that they don't have all of the skills necessary to be highly successful at the next level. And what it produces is a heavy handed management style. They micromanage, they helicopter over their people. They change um, ideas that their people have put forth and make it their own. So suffering under that type of supervision, under that type of leadership, understand the pressures that they're, that they're going through. And, if they were, for to example, tell you something that didn't make sense, simply label it. Hmm. Here's an example. I want you to, I want you to divide this work up between these twelve three ring binders and have them on my desk by the close of business today. 
it sounds like it's important for you to have all of this work done before I leave. It seems like it's pretty important for you to have that done. It seems like there's pressure on you from above to present this first thing tomorrow morning. Hmm. Those, that sim- those simple labels will be enough to demonstrate f- to your boss that you get where he's coming from or she's coming from. And now you get your response back and you continue to label and mirror to find out what the true motivation behind the ask is. You know, it, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it seems like you don't care if I have to work beyond my appointed time in order to get this accomplished. Mm-hmm. To find out where it's coming from. And then perhaps a mirror or two or a calibrated question or two. So I guess the bottom line, what I'm trying to say is these skills can be worked in reverse order. Yeah. You don't have to continue to, to, to be, to be victimized. You said that you wanted this done, these 12 binders done by the close of business today. What's making you say that? Mm. Eh, you know, do it. Cause I said so. <laughs> So it sounds like there's not a real push to get it done externally. You just want it done because you said so. And you labeling it in that fashion, those are his words, her words coming out of your mouth. And once they're spoken into the air, now they can begin to see whether or not what they just asked you to do makes any sense to them. Right. Is it really necessary? And again, you're on safe ground because you're not making anything up out of whole cloth. You're just taking what they're giving you from the other side. You're repackaging it and you're giving it right back to them. Right. Sounds a lot better than uh, gritting your teeth or rolling your eyes and the, the normal responses that I think come with, with those sort of demands. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. This is this is a, a big help. I, I wish I talked to you about a year ago. I had I had a boss who had just been promoted, and it was like this a lot. And I I didn't think to try something like that. So uh, a very refreshing idea. Derek, if people want to learn more from you and and learn more about these ideas that you have, where's a good place for people to look for you online? Uh, join us at the Black Swan Group, BlackSwanLTD.com. Um, you can find me on Derek M. Gaunt on Instagram and uh, you drop in Derek Gaunt in LinkedIn. You'll find, you'll find me there. Uh, you'll find me there as, as well. And of course, Amazon, ego, authority, failure. Um, it's, it's, it's doing okay, um, but I'm always looking to do better. So check <laughs> it out if you get the opportunity. All right. Well, Derek, with that, my, my final question for you is, how can a leader inspire a culture of tactical empathy? Do first. Hmm. And it will be done. The biggest benefit of your demonstrating tactical empathy as a leader is reciprocity. Because you do it first, your downliners, your subordinates, 
are more inclined to do for you. When I talk about laying out those empathetic stepping stones, if you're a, if you're a leader who employs tactical empathy, when you make those hard choices and you make that ask of your subordinates, you're, they're less inclined to give pushback because you put them first. That's the biggest challenge. One of the biggest challenges for leaders today is subordinating themselves to their subordinates, mm-hmm. showing deference to their subordinates. No one has ever showed them how to do it, and that's what I tried to do with the book. Well, Derek, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Brendan. I appreciate it. Everybody, that was Derek Gaunt, hostage negotiator, leadership trainer, and author of Ego, Authority, and Failure. And if you want to help us get more great guests like this on the show, then be sure to give us a review, especially on Apple Podcasts. That's a huge help, and we'll catch you next time.